It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. It's only rock and roll, but I like it. All right, that is the most you're ever going to hear me sing on this podcast. We are going to rock into the Georgia Senate runoff, uh, amazing firing at Twitter, uh, more stuff about Donald Trump and his company being convicted. But I start with that because I mentioned at the end of the podcast yesterday, I posted um, my picks on Facebook and Twitter for the best harmony songs, pure harmony from classic rock. And a lot of people responded, well, you know, hear about this. What about this one? And I'm going to revise the list based on the feedback I'm getting from people. Um, for example, more than a few said, well, what about the Beach Boys? And I was like, that's the sound of my slapping my head. Of course, the Beach Boys. Um, you know, they may have been singing about girls and cars and um, all that stuff. But they had great harmony. Mamas and Papas as well. Uh, my friend Patrick took issue with my pick from the Grateful Dead of Box of Rain, which is a fabulous harmony song from a group not necessarily well-known for harmony. He said, no, 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 Uncle John's band. Go listen to it. So I went and listened to it, and it is a, a classic harmony song as well. All of the lyrics, I think, are sung just about uh, with the different voices, not just Jerry Garcia. Um, but I still slightly preferred Box of Rain. It just had a sort of, I could hear the... Maybe it was just a better recording, uh, more separation of the voices, particularly the high harmony. So I hope I haven't put you to sleep with this, but it's nice to be able to talk about something other than politics. Um, also slapping my forehead this morning, um, yesterday, uh, an editor from Time Magazine went was making the rounds and saying, here are the finalists for Person of the Year. And they were talking about Liz Cheney. They were talking about Ron DeSantis, who might get it next year, but I don't think this year. So I wrote a column about it, and I said, look, you bozos, the person who is the obvious choice for this coveted honor, because, you know, I mean, it's a publicity stunt for time, but it has such a storied history, is Zelensky, is Vladimir Zelensky. And it turned out to be kind of a head fake. I said he probably wouldn't get it because it wouldn't be a controversial choice, wouldn't generate enough buzz, and they'll probably go with someone else. But it was Zelensky announced today, and I was never more glad to be wrong on my handicapping of it. And I made the case. I mean, here's this guy who is, you know, a sitcom star who no experience in politics, gets elected president, country, you know, suffers this brutal invasion by Russia, war crimes, tar deliberate targeting of civilians. And he rallies his people. And of course, it's the brave uh, people of Ukraine as well. And they repel the invasion. And now Russia is reduced to, you know, firing rockets at apartment buildings and trying to kill more people and try to take out the infrastructure so they don't have any heat this uh, winter. Uh, and yet, not only have the Ukrainian forces under Zelensky recaptured uh, Kyrgyzstan and, and a whole bunch of land along that eastern border, but they've mounted some strikes uh, that have landed inside Russia. So Zelensky, person of the year, well-deserved. You know, today is December 7th, so it's the 81st anniversary of Pearl Harbor. But I have a more personal reaction to the date because it was the birthday of my late father. And 
these two things are actually interrelated because on December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese launched that sneak attack on the undefended warships and planes of Pearl Harbor, which basically got us into World War II, um, that date in 1941, my father had his bar mitzvah and they started to hear about it. You know, today everybody would be on their phones, but then, uh, you know, the, the news was just sort of slowly getting to him. And I just always thought about that uh, whenever he had a birthday, that, that, you know, his birthday was the same of what turned out to be Pearl Harbor Day when he was just 13 years old. Um, a lot of sympathy from ref, left, right, and center for Ted Cruz after reports that his 14-year-old daughter uh, had been hospitalized for what I guess you would characterize as a suicide attempt, maybe cry for help, uh, with stab wounds. And I'm glad that she's all right. She's reported to be okay. And the Cruz family has asked for privacy. Um, and I'm glad that people aren't using this, most people that is, you know, as a way to attack a senator and people on the left maybe they don't like. It's got to be hard growing up as the daughter of a high-profile senator and former presidential candidate. Um, Cruz's daughter last year came out as bisexual and made a point of saying on TikTok that she doesn't agree with most of her father's conservative views. Um, and, you know, this business about particularly young women, teenagers, you know, sometimes cutting themselves is more common than you might think. So nothing but sympathy for Ted Cruz. It's a day to put aside partisan politics or whether you agree or disagree with him on this, that, or the other thing. All right, we're now going to get to the main event. We're going to rock into story number one, the Georgia runoff. And it was a cliffhanger last night, or at least it appeared to be, because the lead kept going back and forth between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. And so all of the cable coverage and the you know people at the big boards, the magic walls, was trying to decipher where the vote that hadn't come in was coming from. Because, you know, some of the red districts and, and rural counties would report, and suddenly Herschel Walker would be up 20 or 30,000 votes. And you could see the anchors and correspondents getting a little nervous about the possibility that Herschel Walker might pull it out. And they would say, well, look, you know, it just turns out he's still competitive. And, you know, after all the uh, rocky campaign, to put it mildly, um, you know, they were looking at the possibility that he could win. And then other districts would report or mail-in ballots would be counted. It was the only race. It was all about turnout, who could turn out their voters. And Raphael Warnock would go back in the lead. As it turned out, in the end, it wasn't close because there was this huge um, cash, I guess you would say, of uncounted ballots, about 45% from the Atlanta area. Now, some of those counties surrounding Atlanta uh, are more conservative, but when you get to the city itself, obviously that was going to be a goldmine of Democratic votes for Senator Warnock. And once those came in, Suddenly NBC projected, then CNN projected, then it was the AP and the New York Times that Raphael Warnock would be reelected. It turns out he won by about 100,000 votes. 
So despite the cliffhanger nature of the coverage, uh, in the end, it wasn't that close. It was about three percentage points. And I just want to say a few things about this. One is, uh, it wasn't until this morning because I went to bed that I saw Herschel Walker's concession speech. And it was pretty good. I mean, he said, uh, I want you still to believe in America, to believe in the Constitution, which I think was a reference to Donald Trump saying we can set the Constitution aside so that I can either be reinstated as president or have a do-over election. We'll get to that later on. Um, And I thought it was pretty classy for a guy who just had a terrible time running as a candidate. Um, You got to give credit to Warnock, who's a reverend and who, you know, managed to turn out his vote. Uh, in a state that we used to think of as pretty red and now I think is pretty purple. I mean, Raphael Warnock has won two runoffs in a row. One gave the Democrats a 50-50 split in the Senate, which means they controlled it. This one makes him the 51st vote for the Democrats. And that is huge. Because for one thing, they don't always have to rely on Kamala Harris to break the tie. Secondly, they will have a, be able to push through much more quickly uh, nominations because they'll have a larger share on committees than you get in a 50-50 power-sharing arrangement. And three, uh, it takes the nuclear bomb away from Joe Manchin. I mean, Joe Manchin basically as the 50th Senate vote in the last Biden term could veto anything, really, by refusing to go along. The, the Democrats could not afford to lose a single vote. Now they could afford to lose Joe Manchin. Of course, uh, he often acted, whether it was the filibuster or whatever, in tandem with Kirsten Cinema, so they can't afford to lose both of them um, because that would enable the Republicans to, uh, to prevail. And I got to say, though, that Herschel Walker, I mean, had all this personal baggage. Um, All of these women who came out and said that he, which he always denied, you know, just there were too many of them for it all to be made up, in my view, that either he paid for their abortions or pressured them into having abortions, a couple of those. And then there were women who said he just got violent with them and including one who came out virtually at the last minute during this runoff and then was actually interviewed. I mean, her name was used in the print stories. actually was interviewed on the Today Show Monday morning. I, I don't think that met, is a reason for that he lost. I think people written, people, Republicans who wanted to support Herschel Walker, but I think um, it didn't help, let's put it that way. It was always a sense of another shoe dropping and another shoe dropping. And his son Christian just totally went off on him and said some really mean things about his dad, as he did during the campaign. And then also blamed the Republican Party, saying, you know, any boring Republican could have won. Which brings me to the Donald Trump role. Donald Trump handpicked Herschel Walker. And there were five battleground Senate races. In Arizona, in Nevada, in Pennsylvania, in New Hampshire, and in Georgia. The the Republicans only needed to win two out of those five, and they would control the United States Senate. Instead, all five MAGA 
handpicked Trump candidates, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, uh, and you had this retired general, Don Bolduck, in New Hampshire. They all lost. The Democrats won all five of those races. It is the first time, if you look at it from Joe Biden's perspective, since FDR, that the president in power in his first midterm didn't lose a single Senate seat. So let's take a look at uh, these takeaways. Everyone's saying, here's our takeaway, okay? Washington Post, the reason seems to boil down to the Democrats' successful effort to turn out voters early. There was a huge vote early. And in fact, the turnout in blue areas was simply stronger relative to the general election. It reinforced everything we knew about Trump and the 2022 election, says the Washington Post, which is that the former president and Trumpy candidates cost the GOP, including the Senate majority. Walker was the one statewide GOP candidate who didn't win on election day. Remember, Republican Governor Brian Kemp won easily. Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger won easily. Both had been attacked by Trump because they didn't buy the uh, stolen election argument. And so let's look at some other uh, takeaways here. Politico, of all the candidates Trump elevated in this year's midterms, few resemble Trump as closely as Walker, a scandal-plagued, celebrity-turned-politician and early adopter of Trump's lie that the 2020 election was rigged. You know, some of these candidates, you know, once they got the nomination, were like, well, you know, I don't really want to talk about 2020 or abortion rights. Yeah, they were all in on pro-life until it became you know, a motivating factor for many Democrats and many women and some men to turn out. Um, It was Trump who handpicked Walker for the Georgia Senate run uh, and on and on. A fitting coda to his demoralizing fall from power. Well, you know, don't count Donald Trump out yet, even though he had a terrible midterm season. He's had a terrible few weeks. Let's not forget that. Here's a Washington Post columnist, David Vondrelli who talks about what a fabulous athlete Herschel Walker was and won the Heisman Trophy in college and then played for Donald Trump in the ill-fated USFL and then went to the NFL and scored, I think it was over 60 touchdowns. And then uh, Vondrelli writes, today he's known for his humiliating campaign for the Senate. The debacle featuring allegations of his abandoned children, terrorized mates, brandished firearms, fictionalized achievements, and secret funding of girlfriends' abortions ended um, with the victory for Warnock on Tuesday night. And Vondrelli goes on to say, it's one thing for a deeply flawed person to accept admiration for his former athletic magnificence, but it's quite another for him to seek a role in leading the country. The dirty laundry that Walker kept stuffed into the vault behind his trophy case was hauled into the glare of television lights and packaged into millions of dollars of negative advertising. No tackler could trip him up, but on the campaign trail, Walker struggled to break free of the grip of simple sentences. In the last days of the race, Warnock bought TV time to play Walker's most baffling statements over and over. You know, would you... Rather be a werewolf or a vampire. It's a bad sign in politics when your opponent starts paying to broadcast your words. And finally, Politico has the inevitable dumping on the candidate by members of his campaign. He never should have run for the seat, said a person close to the campaign. 
Herschel had a ton of baggage that he was not transparent about. We were constantly behind the eight ball. Some said that Walker and his wife, Julie Blanchard Walker, who you heard very little about during this campaign, maybe because of the embarrassment of all the accusations from past girlfriends, um, never fully empowered the team to make decisions. Um, the pair, that is the husband and wife, insisted on spending what aides described as excessive amounts of time pouring over proposals for every campaign stop. Uh, Stafford said that uh, Herschel Walker's wife even suggested her husband should be winning as much as 50% of the black vote in Georgia, regularly commenting that the campaign needed to be getting him in front of his people. Uh, A Republican victory in the Georgia Senate race, even with a black nominee, was unlikely to involve the party winning over droves of black voters. The overwhelmingly demographic, Democratic demographic propelled Warnock to office two years ago. Quote, person close to the campaign. She, saw, she thought we should be getting amounts of African-American voters that no Republican in the history of modern politics has ever gotten. And that became an obsessive focus. Uh, Laura Ingram on the air last night said, to me, it never felt like Senate Republicans wanted this guy in office. He was a Trump pick and they didn't like that. I'm pissed tonight. And frankly, I'm mad. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. All right, story number two. So this involves me a little bit because I was on the air last night, uh, excuse me, yesterday afternoon with Martha McCallum, and I went on to talk about uh, the ABC anchors, T.J. Holmes and Amy Roback, and how they've been taken off the air, and you've heard me talk about this. And I said that I think they've gotten a bun rap. Well, while, just before I went on during the commercial break, I was told there had just been a verdict in the Trump organization trial. I didn't even get in my ear what it was. And so I might have to do this really quickly because the reporter was going to come out and, you know, there were only like five minutes left in the show. So I came out and Martha read a very brief thing about the guilty verdict against the Trump organization. And Eric Sean of Fox was trying to get free to be in place, but he wasn't ready. Probably couldn't get out of the courthouse in time. So I did the business about ABC, and there was about, you know, a minute and a half left in the show, and they still couldn't get Eric Sean. So Martha came to me, not knowing what I knew much about it, and said, what's your take on this? And I'd been following it very closely. So I said, well, look, you had the former CFO, Alan Weisselberg, who made a plea agreement with prosecutors to go in there and testify, and that he was the prime recipient along with one other executive, of all these tax breaks, of all these benefits that he didn't have to pay for. Um, And that prosecutors argued that Donald Trump knew about this and actually signed a piece of paper that showed that he knew about this. This was obviously contested by the defense. Um, And that's where it stands. So I dealt with the breaking news just because I happened to be in the chair. That's how live television works, and I was happy to have a chance to do it. So, uh, you know, in the end, it's a, it, the, the Trump organization. So look at the New York Times lead here. The Trump organization, the family real estate business that made Donald Trump a billionaire and propelled him from reality television to the White House, was convicted of tax fraud and other crimes, forever tarring the former president 
and the company that bears his name. Guilty on all 17 counts. And people like Weisselberg and this other executive, they got off-the-book perks. Luxury apartments, leased Mercedes Benzes, extra cash at Christmas, free cable TV. They pay taxes on none of it. But you know, in the scheme of things, it's not that huge a deal. The company is facing $1.6 million fine for a company the size of the the Trump organization. That's not really going to break the bank. Uh, Prosecutors didn't charge Trump, but they invoked him throughout the trial. Um, And so Weisselberg, you know, because Weisselberg had to, he didn't blame Donald Trump in any of his testimony, but he acknowledged how he and the company's controller schemed to cheat state and tax, uh, federal tax authorities over a 15-year period. Uh, he is one who got the luxury apartment and the Mercedes, private school tuition for his grandkids. In some cases, he paid the company back. Um, in other cases, the expenses were paid for by the company, but not reported as taxable income. He was facing a 15-year jail term, and so he cooperated. The Manhattan DA's office uh, also said, as I noted, that Trump had personal knowledge of the cheating. What did Donald Trump have to say about this? Disappointed with the verdict in Manhattan, but will appeal. Um, New York City's a violent place. The case was about Alan Weisselberg committing tax fraud on his personal tax returns, etc. He and every witness repeatedly testifying that President Trump and the Trump family knew nothing about his actions, says Trump, referring to himself in the third person. He admits that were done solely for his own benefit, with no benefit to the two companies. Why would corporations, which knew nothing about Weisselberg's personal tax returns, be prosecuted for that person's conduct? So he kind of throws Weisselberg under the bus. Now, also in this segment, the January 6th committee has decided to make criminal referrals to the Justice Department in these final weeks of control. Benny Thompson saying, well, we haven't agreed on which, you know, why? Why bother? The Justice Department is investigating the hell out of Donald Trump. It's symbolic. Maybe it makes it easier uh, legally for the panel to turn over all of its uh, interviews and documents, subpoena documents, so forth, to DOJ. Um, Maybe it's just to make a statement that we did something important here. But, you know, I mean, that train left the station a long time ago. It seems to me to be purely symbolic. Which brings me to number three, Donald Trump and the Constitution. So it turns out that more Republicans are speaking out against Donald Trump saying we have to uh, throw out all these rules and regulations, including those in the Constitution. He later blamed this on fake news. They're his words. Mitch McConnell, what I'm saying is it would be pretty hard to be sworn into the presidency if you're not willing to uphold the Constitution. Pretty similar to the language he used in talking about the Kanye disastrous dinner. John Cornyn, the number two Senate Republican. I don't know why anybody would say something like that. Certainly not an ex-president. Not a responsible thing to say. Ari Fleischer on Fox. Think of all the things that former President Trump has ever said. This is probably the most outrageous. I just don't know how in the name anybody 
could think that our Constitution, the thing that has saved the Union, the thing that we fought wars over, can be suspended. It can't. It has to be honored and followed. It's a reverent document. We should revere it. So I'm just baffled by what he said. You know, the strain is always he does good things. President Trump does good things and says terrible things. But particularly after the January 6th riot, it's just inexplicable to me, inexplicable to me that former President Trump could come down on that side in any way, shape, or form. That's what we're looking at here. And then, you know, in these interviews, everyone, the anchors often say, well, could you support him? Would you, you disavow him? They don't want to do that because he might end up the nominee and they might have to support him. But they certainly have criticized him on Kanye, on Fuentes, on um, the latest business about his, uh, the Constitution. I mean, let's just be honest here. This is not media bias. Donald Trump has had an awful, awful few weeks. As further result, number three, the special counsel, Jack Smith. I thought his role was basically to review everything the Justice Department had done and then weigh in on whether it was good, bad, or indifferent, and whether, in his opinion, uh, submit to Merrick Garland his opinion about whether charges should or should not be brought. But it turns out that Jack Smith has now subpoenaed, on his own, local officials in Arizona, Michigan, and Wisconsin, three states where Trump was personally involved, and his campaign was personally involved, uh, in trying to reverse the results of the Electoral College. So... The request for these local officials and records in certain counties, such as Maricopa County in Arizona, um, Milwaukee and Wayne County, Milwaukee also in Wisconsin, Dane County, Wisconsin. The point is, these are among the first known subpoenas. This is a Washington Post scoop. They went to the local people. The subpoenas are dated last month, but we just didn't know about it. So what's, what Jack Smith is trying to do is to expand the investigation now. Uh, I'm happy to participate in this process, said the Milwaukee clerk, confirming the subpoena. Um, as well, uh, uh, the Dane County clerk in Wisconsin, quoted as saying, I'm not aware of any significant communications that have not already been made public. Spokesman from Maricopa County saying, we have received a subpoena and will comply. So maybe it's a small step. Maybe it's not, um, but it does show you that Jack Smith's not going to be a rubber stamp, that he has arguably expanded the scope of the investigation, which would seem to suggest that he's taking this seriously and sees the possibility of criminal charges. But you can't jump the gun here. The process has to play out. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number four, uh, I think the cat is kind of out of the bag when it comes to Joe Biden running for re-election. You know, he's several times said, well, i got to talk to the family. So Jill Biden was at this state dinner for Emmanuel Macron, and she told Macron that she and her husband are ready for his re-election campaign, according to two people with knowledge of the discussion. That's from the New York Times. Others have this as well. The president then joined the French president, in a kind of a playful toast, lighthearted moment, um, but made pretty clear, and the White House is very happy to have this out, um, that he'll make a formal announcement after the holiday season, that it's really not up in the air anymore. And look, given the pretty successful midterm he had, yes, the Democrats lost the House, 
but not by 30 or 40 votes. The red wave didn't materialize. It's going to be a much tougher next two years because of the Republican House. We'll see whether it's Kevin McCarthy or somebody else. That whole business about who's going to be the speaker on the GOP side yet to be decided. So there was a toast, Macron raising a glass of wine, as you would expect the French president to do, and Biden raising a glass of Coca-Cola. Um, White House did not respond for comment. They're certainly not knocking it down. Biden is, uh, Jill Biden is being described as all in. Uh, there had been some question given the fact that her husband is 80 and that there's going to be a whole bunch of investigations by the House. You know, would she uh, be up for another campaign? Sounds like the answer is yes. And now here was a very clumsy moment, uh, really inexplicably clumsy, by President Biden. He's in Arizona yesterday, and he's there to tout uh, some plant that is, uh, you know, using money from, from the bills that he got passed to um, do more manufacturing. And somebody asked him, a reporter asked him, well, what about going to the border? And Biden said, oh, just Peter Ducey a Fox. Why not go to, why go to a border state and not visit the border? Because there are more important things going on, Biden responded. They're going to invest billions of dollars in a new enterprise. And Karine Jean-Pierre said, well, you know, these Republicans going down to the border, it's just political stunts. Look, the border's a mess, okay? The Customs and Border Protection Agency has reported 230,000 border encounters just in the month of October, breaking the record set in September. So it's a mess. And of course, the Republicans want Biden to go there so they can have the president there and they can talk about how the border is not secure despite the administration's rhetoric. And of course, the president doesn't want to go because he doesn't want to highlight what he well knows and members of the administration know uh, are policies that aren't working and the border is a mess. That's a technical term. It's a friggin' mess. Um, but to say, well, there are more important things sounds like he's saying it's not important. The border's not important. And that was, you know, a lot of conservative critics jumped on that. Uh, I think the White House put out some kind of clarification. In any event, um, a gaffe by a president who's known to make a few. Now I get to story number five, and this is the juicy stuff. Twitter and what happened with the Twitter files. So you may recall, if you haven't been breathlessly following this, that Substack journalist Matt Taibbi was picked by Elon Musk and endured a lot of personal abuse that was completely unwarranted, in my humble opinion, to go through the Twitter files, which Elon didn't even read most of them himself, which I found pretty bizarre since he kind of touted this as going to be a great scandal. And, you know, not to spend time rehashing the whole thing, but it was found that Democrats had a lot more access uh, to making requests, such as could you get rid of those X-rated pictures of Hunter Biden than Republicans did, but Republicans also participated, as did the Trump campaign. And Taibbi reported that there was no government involvement in the decision by Twitter, which was not in response to a Biden campaign request, to block the New York Post story on the Hunter Biden laptop saying these could be hacked materials. They weren't, as it turned out. Okay. So there was no smoking gun. I've taken some heat for saying that. I've heard many conservatives say that. It was interesting stuff, behind-the-scenes stuff. So here's Taibbi saying, look, that was on a Friday, that was last Friday night. We expected to publish more the next day. And we didn't. And now he can tell you why. 
Part of the reason why is that on Tuesday, Twitter Deputy General Counsel, and this is the key part, former FBI General Counsel Jim Baker was fired by Elon Musk. Among the reasons, he was, unbeknownst apparently to the new boss, the chief twit, he was vetting the first batch of Twitter files without the knowledge of new management, as Taibbi puts it. So the process for producing Twitter files involved delivering to two journalists, Taibbi himself and Barry Weiss. She's the woman who left the New York Times when she felt uh, it was a hostile environment there. She was an opinion editor there. She's a liberal, but not a crazy liberal. And she is doing the second part. So both of them, according to Taibbi, were dealing with obstacles over the weekend to new searches. And it was Barry Weiss who discovered the person in charge of releasing files. The first name was Jim. When she called to ask Jim's last name, the answer came back, Jim Baker. Quote from Barry Weiss, my jaw hit the floor, she said. Uh, Baker, he goes on to explain, is a controversial figure. He's something of a zealot of FBI controversies dating back to 2016, from the Steele dossier to other messes. He resigned in 2018, Jim Baker did from the FBI, after an investigation into leaks to the press. So Elon, not knowing about this, quickly uh, fires Jim Baker yesterday. Reporters are resuming their uh, searches, a lot of it. The next installment will appear from Barry Weiss, says Taibbi, stay tuned. I hope you've stayed tuned all this way. Uh, meanwhile, a fascinating uh, Meta, Facebook's parent company, issued a warning yesterday that if Congress passes a bill, this is a bill that's called the Journalism and Competition and Preservation Act. It's aimed at small newspapers and small news organizations. It's not aimed at the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. To provide some federal funding with bipartisan support, it would enable publishers to negotiate with places like Facebook and Google over how their con content is distributed on such platforms. This includes requiring these social media firms to pay for the news content that they essentially get for free. And, you know, Facebook comes out and says, well, you know, we already negotiate, blah, blah, blah. But the warning is, if this bill passes Congress, Facebook would remove all news from its U.S. platform. Nice little setup you got here. Be ashamed if anything happened to it. You pass this bill, we are out. You will get no news on Facebook. I don't think Facebook would actually follow through. I think it's an empty threat. I don't know if this bill is going to pass Congress, but there you have it. And this is said on the record. We will be forced to consider removing news from our platform altogether. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm a little out of breath <laughs> covering all this stuff. Uh, there is just so much, uh, especially with the Georgia runoff and the, what's going on at Twitter and the Constitution and all of that. So once again, I always want to feel the need to thank you for bearing with me. This podcast is getting more popular by the moment. I will talk about that tomorrow. That's a little tease for you. And I think many of you are already subscribing. But if you're not... Apple iTunes, Amazon Music. You can get it without the ads. See you all tomorrow. Back here with more BuzzMeter. 
Kudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Kudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.